0: Good morning, noon, or night, wherever and whenever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I'm your host. My name is Doug McKenty. This 107th episode was recorded on February 2nd, 2020. Today on the program, I'm happy to welcome back full-time organic farmer and part-time historian Dwayne Hayes. His new YouTube channel, The History of Propaganda, includes series such as The House of Truth, From the Embers of War, and The Captains of Industry, which describe the beginning of the progressive movement and its roots in an early 20th century think tank located at 1727 19th Street in Washington, D.C., For nearly a decade, this house was frequented by many now considered the progenitors of progressivism, including such luminaries as Charles Beard, Charles Seymour, and perhaps most famously, Walter Lippmann, now considered the father of modern American journalism. Though progressivism is often touted as a grassroots movement of the common person, struggling to overcome the naturally oppressive and alienating characteristics of a system of capitalism which centralizes the means of production in the hands of a wealthy elite, Dwayne's work provides a mountain of evidence proving direct involvement by the richest of the upper class in the funding and promoting of progressivism from its earliest inception. Duane posits through his work that the Early Progressive Movement was born out of a public-private partnership utilizing funding from the so-called captains of industry to infiltrate government policy-making institutions in order to promote a scientific socialism designed to utilize a planned economy combined with social engineering techniques to literally herd the masses in directions favorable to the upper classes. Providing primary source material often produced by these very figures themselves, Duane is able to connect this small group of socialist innovators to elite foundations. Perhaps most disturbingly, associations with the Round Table groups connected to the trust of imperialist magnate Cecil Rhodes are uncovered. This partnership results in the promotion of an Anglo-American establishment seeking to empower the very forces of 19th century colonialism that the modern progressive professes to abhor. Duane goes on to reveal through his work a multitude of early progressive talking points that often include many of the policies often blamed on capitalist oppression. He exposes direct connections with this movement and Taylorism, which promoted the creation of the alienating factory system of labor in common use today. Not only that, but the House of Truth series also exposes connections with eugenics, as well as manipulative psychological techniques such as behaviorism in education and propaganda in journalism. Even the early technocratic movement, now threatening to subsume our very humanity in service to a transhumanist agenda, finds its roots among these progenitors to what has become the modern progressive movement. Altogether, this information suggests that progressivism and its anti-free market rhetoric may simply represent an upper-class response to populist and libertarian attempts to curb elite power through a philosophy of decentralization. Is it possible that modern progressives, believing their political philosophy is in contrast to imperial forces seeking to control the masses through capitalistic enterprise, are inadvertently promoting upper-class interests? Can it be that a well-crafted propaganda campaign imposed through effective marketing and ingrained educational practices utilizing behavioral modification techniques have caused many to serve a master they truly believe they are opposing? According to the work of Dwayne Hayes, the answer may very well be yes. Find out more on the History of Propaganda channel on YouTube, or go to www.bulletproofpub.com. As always, if you like what you're hearing, please like, subscribe, and share this alternative perspective on your social media outlets. If you want to find out more about The Shift, find hours of free content, sign up for the newsletter, or subscribe for feature-length episodes of the program. Go to www.theshiftnow.com. You can also find my written work at the Populist Papers blog on Substack. To get involved with the conversation, you can find Doug McKenty on Facebook, and I'm also at D. McKenty on Twitter. Enjoy this nuanced conversation about the early history of the progressive movement. I want to thank Dwayne Hayes for his work and for agreeing to this interview, and thank you for helping to make The Shift. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this, the 107th episode of The Shift. I'm your host, Doug McKenty. I'm joined today by a documentary producer. He's got a blog as well, Dwayne Hayes. He's uh, just put up a new series called The History of Propaganda. I hope to see more of this. And he's been diving really deeply into, especially that period around 1910, 1900 to 1930, maybe thereabouts, uh, when the progressive movement really got going. And then he's showing a lot of their relationships between the key players um, and the uh, elite foundations, the tax exempt foundations that were, that were uh, getting started uh, during that same period. So it's just such a pivotal part of the 20th century. It, it really. Really, the uh, that period in history that has developed into the modern age, when the elite foundations were were started, and then we instantly see their influence in completely altering the education system, completely changing the healthcare system. Uh, and really kickstarting this progressive movement that um, has, has come to fruition so much so in the last 100, 120 years. And uh, Duane has really been documenting the key figures behind this, the intellectuals and academics that were recruited, uh, the propaganda that got started at that time and really pushed. Um, operant behavioral conditioning is a term that will come up, and uh, he always cites the primary source material, from which these ideas spawn. And if you've been doing this kind of I'm I'm starting to call it populist history, uh, then you you know that these guys, just like Klaus Schwab just wrote The Great Reset and the Fourth Industrial Revolution, if you go to their primary sources, then they tell you right there in black and white exactly what they're doing, and, and this time period in the in the 1920s. Lots of, of pivotal books were being written uh, that were outlining plans that came to fruition throughout the rest of the 20th century. So thanks a lot, Dwayne, for coming on. Um, and you want to just give people a little bit about your background and history and, and why you're doing this work?
1: Yeah, sure. First of all, thanks for having me on, Doug. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've been
1: watching your work for a long time and you inspire me often. And so when you asked me to come on, I uh, jumped at the chance. Great. Anytime I can help with the shift. Uh, I'm going to be there. And so a little background on myself, I suppose. Um, I'm well-versed in all three arts is probably the one thing I'm most proud of. Mm-hmm. I started my life as a, as a fine artist. I did a lot of art in school. Um, eventually, I went into the utilitarian arts, which is the servitude arts, like carpentry or plumbing. I got my Red Seal Carpenter carpentry seal so then after that I had actually discovered the trivium and the liberal arts and my life in a way has been the accumulation of all of these three arts and I I was not even aware of what I was doing but it's given me a sort of a perspective and a a way to attack history uh, using the trivium yeah, to sort of deductively go through this process of what we're about to go through today.
0: I, I don't remember what episode, but I, when I had you on last time, I was looking for somebody to talk about these foundations. And you were actually one of the few people um, writing, uh, writing about it on your blog. Was that mm-hmm. out of out of the haze? I was looking yep, for from it. out of the haze, from out of the haze.
1: It's actually my old website. So now you guys can find us at BulletproofPub.com. OK. And the History of Propaganda on YouTube. Great. We just started a website. It's kind of a it's a accumulation of all knowledge. I've got a team going right now that's actually it's super exciting. There's some new people coming on board that we can't really discuss publicly right now, but it's exciting our team. So great. Yeah, that's kind of where we're at. And so where I should probably start here, you talked about the time period. And so this this time period of uh, the progressive movement really coincides with Woodrow Wilson's presidency. So in 1912 he gets elected. In 1920 he his two terms are over. So in that eight years, it's actually pretty profound the differences of the changes made to the American society. And he's largely responsible in that he is the man in charge at that time. So you know he's actually looked at it, historians will look at Woodrow Wilson as a father of progressivism mm-hmm. in that he wrote The New Freedom. Uh, in 1912, this is his campaign, uh, his campaign platform, and so in 1912, this is the year that all three, there was the three presidential candidates: Wilson, Taft, and Roosevelt. All three members of the, or uh, all three of these guys are members of the Century Club. So we start to see connections between the gentlemen's uh, dinner clubs and uh, secret societies through the fraternal order, through their time in universities. And so they, they get presented to the public as on different sides of the argument, but they really are from the same school of thought. So right. uh, Teddy Roosevelt, his platform in 1912 was the new nationalism. So that was coined by Herbert Crowley, who founded the new republic. And so hmm. both of those actually... It, this all starts, It's all really starts from Roosevelt, and he's really the one that pushes this progressive movement, and that consists of three things. It's a strong, efficient workforce, uh, prepared military, and then a centralized government to, to control private industry.
0: You know, that's interesting. And I, I want to preface this uh, conversation a little bit because I'm starting myself and I've always, I'm, I've am started this blog. I'm calling it the populist papers because I've come to yeah. the conclusion that, that, uh, this movement, I I'm just tired of calling it conspiracy theory movement, right? you know, like why yeah. are we using sure. these guys terms? Sure. And I, I came to the conclusion, according mm-hmm. to my interpretation of history, that, um, That what conspiracy theory is, what's often referred to as this, is actually just the continuation of the populist movement that started in the 1870s, thereabouts after the Civil War with the rise of the robber barons that I argue were created out of uh, the Civil War because they were essentially defense contractors. They made bank on the on the Civil War, and then they were able to extend their wealth and power and government connections into kind of this rape of the western half of the united states for for resources and building up the railroads and then of course the oil and the rockefeller get started during that period as well so so it's interesting that you bring up roosevelt because i think that the the populist period the populist movement of that day was gaining steam until that kind of interesting i believe the um it was the 1904 presidential election when roosevelt teddy roosevelt was elected Mm -hmm. um and there was like this interesting split, and that was a, that was the height of the populist movement. I think it was Senator William Bryant. Bryant was his name. He made this famous uh, cross of- William of, Jennings Bryant. That's right, William Jennings Bryant. Um, yeah. And he talked about silver because at the time the populists understood that the gold racket was driving the currency, the monopoly of the currency, just like many conspiracy theorists discussed today. And they were trying to include silver so they could expand uh, the currency markets and allow more, you know, more people access, uh, to a more free currency market. So people could actually, you know, um, it's, it's, I think the, uh, artificial scarcity created in the currency market, that's uh, so oppressive to so many people. So that was their answer, their solution back then I've done interviews with, uh, Ellen Brown from the public banking Institute. And she talks about like the wizard of Oz book that was written in the, during the same period. Uh, where he was a populist and he was trying the 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 um this, the red slippers in the movie were initially silver slippers and the yellow brick road was a metaphor for the gold standard and right and so this is kind of you know it's just fascinating because I think that the upper classes you know they saw the threat from this populist movement and and perhaps potentially this period of, of history that we're about to talk about was, uh, was in response, this buildup of the progressive movement to convince the masses that progressivism was the new liberal way of thinking, um, because they actually feared the populist movement. Um, And I also want to say, I also want to say before we get started is uh, I am coming out a little bit uh, harder against progressive progressivism in general, just because um, for all this time that I've been doing this podcast, I've been wanting to figure out a way to combine the left-right paradigm, but I'm getting to a place, especially with uh, what's been going on the last two years, where my progressive friends have really stopped... They've kind of crossed a line, in my opinion, when it comes to individual rights. Um, you know, this notion that people that believe in individual rights are selfish, that uh, we should all. I, I mean, it's, it's very clear to me that they've been falling in line with uh, with the technocrats. And we'll get into that history, too. There's a clear That's lineage. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so. And so, uh, you know, just in terms of the lockdowns, the government's ability to do this, the masking, the follow the science, the experts, uh, the whole line of argument and the the Mm. serious diminishment of the power of the. Of the first 10 amendments, the Bill of Rights in the the American Constitution, uh, this is very frightening to me. I mean, we're seriously going in a a, a, a negative direction. And I'm just I I think with my blog and more and more with the podcast, it's going to be like, look, it's not the libertarians. It's not the populists that have been pushing this. This late stage capitalism, this phase that where we're at right now, it's the progressive movement, and you can see it from the very beginning. So I don't want to take any more time, but I just wanted to give a little backstory to the conversation um, yeah. so please, so, yeah, please yeah, go on
1: Progressivism is really an answer to the first and second industrial revolution. So you can already see a little bit of dialectic at play there there's there's a there's a problem, and progressivism is being inserted as the reaction or, mm-hmm. the, or the solution to the reaction. They create the reaction through all of this. And so this is really where the expert comes from, this reliance on the expert that we have today, where you'll just read a headline and it says, experts say, this is really, you know, a hundred years of hindsight now. We, this is really the sort of the conclusion of all of those ideas, those progressive ideas that were in, instituted into our society. So we're in a, a very beneficial place right now and that we can look back a hundred years of hindsight is invaluable. Mm -hmm. We can really determine whether these decisions that they made back in, in the day has served the, the following generations of which we are, that was the whole reason behind the progressive movement to, to sort of uh, ameliorate the poor, to, to, to help smooth out some of the, the transition, but in, between the industrial revolutions. Right. And so, I don't know, you see, you see how they use it and so this all starts at this and this is the strangest part about all of it is that it, it this really the progressive movement originates in one living room and it's called the house of truth mm-hmm. and this house is still there you could go visit it today and it's about a mile from the white house and so you can walk to the white house from there in about 10 15 minutes and and in between that walk is all of these gentlemen's clubs like the metropolitan club and you, so you can see how and then when you start to see where everybody was living, they're all kind of living all in the same area. But this this one house at 1727 19th Street is is an amazing place in that it has as roommates, the founding father of American journalism, modern American journalism, Walter Littman. He enters the house at, at the age of 22 and he's coming out of Harvard, Phi Beta Kappa, uh, cum laude. So he's near the top of his class. He's been groomed through Sachs School for Boys, which is um, Goldman Sachs. Julius Sachs is, mm-hmm. is the creator of all of that. And it's really just a prep school for Ivy League. I mean, it's called, it's got a different name now, Dwight, the Dwight School. Yeah. And this Dwight is, is actually a former president of Yale. So you can see where these prep schools, and especially the one that Lipman went through, was just a prep preparatory for him to get into Ivy League. And so it looks like to me that Littman was really groomed. And, and so you can kind of see this faction come on, coming out of the house of truth because you've got two Supreme Court uh, justices there in Louis Brandeis and Felix Frankfurter. And, and that relationship right there is worthy of a book or another program because mm-hmm. it's a mentor-protege relationship, but it's also admitted by Brandeis that it's a father-son, but also brother. So they're very, very tight. And the story of Frankfurter and, and Brandeis, because these two are are considered, especially Brandeis, a founding father of American liberal progressivism. He's, he's really, he's the one that coins some of the terms that are involved in this. Like scientific management is, he coins that. Right. So, uh, Frederick Winslow Taylor is is the guy that creates the scientific management, trying to perfect this. This is part of the efficiency movement, because the progressive movement is really made up of these smaller little, uh, like the suffrage movement is involved in there, the efficiency movement. Well,
0: and this is so fascinating too, because then we're getting into like the ideas of Taylorism, which Ford used in in creating the the Model Ts, and so we're building the factory, the modern factory system, at the same time as we're coming up with this progressive philosophy of, of economics and 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 cultural management really. And, and so you can already see, I mean, it's the upper classes that are interested. They're trying to figure out how to mass produce, how to centralize the means of production. And they've got these guys, you know, they've basically collected them all together uh, in these, in these think tanks, just like we see today, these public private yep. partnerships, and this is just the, sure. basically the kind of the original example of this type of, uh, of public private partnership yep. where there's a think tank that's in, in this house. Uh, and there's what, well, there were over a hundred members at one point, right. Of what, uh, within, within the house of truth or what was the, in, in the, no, there
1: was, pro- well, there was quite a few, I mean,
0: the Inquiry, that's the other group. Oh, was, the
1: Inquiry, yeah. There was over 150. But see, this is all related, too, because, okay. and we we could probably diverge there, but we should probably stay sort of focused on the House of Truth, because sure. this, this story will evolve into the Inquiry, because it all culminates, we were talking about 1912 to 1920, Well, the Paris Peace Conference is 1919, mm-hmm. and this group that you just mentioned, the Inquiry, this is really the origins of the Council on Foreign Relations, the U.S. Intelligence Agency, the Think Tank, and all of these things. But both of these come out of the same milieu. And so when you really take a step back and look, you can see on one side, you've got an international progressive movement. So uh, they talk about self-determination on a national level. This is what they talk about at Paris Peace Conference. And and all of these countries, this is what they're looking for is self-determination. And this is what Woodrow Wilson is promising everybody. And this is another unattainable ideal. In that you can't promise everybody uh, self-determination, right? And so then you can, you can apply this also to the domestic side, to, to the U.S. Uh, domestic uh, population, right? That they, they then infuse these same ideas on that level. So we've got an international, and this is the creation of really the international authority that is the U.N., this is how they do it and it's all through a, a appeals to empathies, which is what the progressive movement breaks down to right this is what we're asking people to do have sympathy for those that have less
0: um and well, to- and that's so exactly right and i and i do want to spend some time when we get to it to talk about the kind of emotional manipulation that walter Lippmann and others the, the propaganda they openly yeah. discuss doing this so the the appeal yeah. to empathy Is what's going on and that's where we get this term i think virtue signaling today it's like what is actually virtuous i mean i understand that progressives are coming from a good place um but the question is when you look at the history have they been manipulated and i i think it's kind of clear actually you know when we see what these people were doing and saying and talking about at the time this was their goal
1: yep and so the owner of the house of truth robert valentine he's he's a founding father of of the thought of industrial democracy, okay. Now this this idea goes over to Russia at the same time and is implemented by Lenin and Stalin, and they actually look at Frederick Winslow Taylor, right, as in much the same way that the Nazis looked at Edward Bernays's book Propaganda. They mm-hmm. they use these books, and at the same time that we're developing a factory system here, they're doing the exact same thing in Russia. And they're pointing to the same book, Frederick Winslow Taylor, the Scientific Management of, of America and, and, the, and the USSR. And on the front cover of that book is a fascist. Hmm. So fascist is, is what you said earlier, this public-private partnership. So when we hear that language today, we can associate it with fascism back then.
0: Because right. it's
1: it's the same thing. Right. Public private partnership is really just a definition of Mussolini's version of fascism, corporatism. Right.
0: Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, one of the other issues, there are so many big topics because this period in history is the the beginning of all of this. But another another issue that comes to mind here is that when people are thinking in terms of dialectic and by that i'm I'm talking about you know the Hegel the political dialectic the hegelian versus the marxist dialectic we often yep. think of this process of history where there's you know capitalism and that's why progressives today talk about late-stage capitalism uh, and then and then according to marx you know the the antithesis was going to be communism and then the you know we need to synthesize and in fact The elites of today are talking about this concept of communitarianism, which is the synthesis of of capitalism and communism. Mm -hmm. But I think I I would say, at least according to my populist interpretation of history, and this is from Carol Quigley's book, Tragedy and Hope, that the elites, through this kind of progressive movement and this think tank, they were actually completely involved in the 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 communists, the development of communism in Russia, sure, sure. fascism in in not, in Germany, and uh, and quote unquote capitalism in the United States, or or so you know the the and democratic China. socialism, Yep. and and you see the China same all over the, the place.
1: One of the first countries that they went into with their money
0: so rather than observing history through this kind of like progression from capitalism to communism to communitarianism that the type of historical paradigm that so many people use and i have a hard time breaking people out of this habit they want to you know they want to believe that this is how things work that the free market grew into you know the the socialism or or communism, which will then evolve into the next the next thesis, mm-hmm. um, is actually not the case. The actual case of history, the historical paradigm that I would argue is from the populist perspective, at least from my perspective is that the wealthy people have been experimenting on us with different forms of social management. Communism was was one idea, fascism was another, and social democracy slash capitalism was another idea. And they've been seeing which one makes them the most money, right? Right. (laughs) Over the last 120 years.
1: Yeah, and experimentation is the word that they all use. Mm -hmm. So uh, the one thing I want to get across here too is all of these members of the House of Truth actually have a designated purpose. So you can see where Louis Brandeis is actually—he's a—he's considered a radical activist judge, which is groundbreaking, right? It's never been done before. It totally reverses the way that Supreme Court justices were supposed to rule law according to the U.S. Constitution. Mm-hmm. This is all prior to Brandeis showing up, and then he presents what's called the Brandeis brief, which changes the whole way that law is looked at or argued, and it's through a more uh, factual. Uh, presentations. It's really what we're familiar with today. If we were to watch Law & Order or something like that, it's really sort of what we're used to. And uh, there was something I was going to say about that all, Brandeis. Uh, Yeah, Uh, it's the experimentation we were talking about, right? Okay. So in his own language, and frankfurters they're they're constantly using this word experimentation and it's to do with the u.s constitution so you know back in the day there there was a lot of upset people both of these um both of their uh both of the frankfurters and brandeis's election to the supreme court was highly controversial you know it actually took several days whereas it it never had before, but it was so controversial that they really had to argue themselves into that position. Uh-huh. And so once he got in there, you can see all kinds of experimentation on the U.S. Constitution being done. And this is really where I sat back and I was like, wow, okay. So now we are right. actually seeing them ad- admitting and we can see the effects and the results of experimentation. So we wonder sometimes today why somebody that we know damn well was guilty got off or the other way around. It's because really morality was removed from jurisprudence. And and Brandeis was a, lot, a large part of that. You know, he's not the only guy. There was a total movement happening there, but he's by far the most highly influential guy. He's, uh, he's at the height of his career. He's an international Zionist. He's, he's probably as close to the, to a leader of the international Zionist movement let alone the American movement. So he's very influential. He's, he's right beside Woodrow Wilson. He's writing speeches for Woodrow Wilson. And he's, he's actually paying Frankfurter to do a lot of his work, his activist work, because he knows that the public persona is not gonna take uh, a judge, an activist judge, so willingly, especially in those in that day and age, now we see mm-hmm. activist judges all the time, especially right. during Trump, the Trump era, we were seeing judges just just do whatever they wanted to do
0: right i mean this is the notion that basically a judge's interpretation doesn't have to be rooted in common law or precedent mm-hmm. so much as yeah. as in their their feelings about i mean the, it it allows for a super broad interpretation of the of the constitution so exact. essentially any, anything goes
1: right it's the and so there's another one when you see subjectivity entering into into things or you're being removed from the source whether that's information or spirit or whatever it is, these are the mm-hmm. little tricks. And so that's another thing I would like to get across today is some of the language that they use. And the, and the one interesting part of it was that, and you mentioned this in the intro was that these guys all wrote books. They're, they're all, all of these guys. So Walter Weil is a, is a, is a a founding father of progressivism. So is uh, Herbert Crowley. He writes, uh, The promise of american life and it's considered the progressive manifesto and everybody points to it including teddy roosevelt as as the 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 nexus of the progressive movement okay and so around crowley you've got woodrow wilson and so walter weill writes the new democracy this is all within this is 1913, 1914, maybe 1915. All of these books come out. The New Democracy, The New Nationalism, The New History by James Harvey Robinson, The New Freedom, Woodrow Wilson, really gets the gets the ball rolling. And then in the 30s, you've got FDR with The, the New Deal. And right. now today with Ocasio-Cortez, you see The Green New Deal. So you can see this whole line just goes all the way through, and it's been the same for 100 and something years. So this is where I started to really realize that, oh, this ideology could be a problem for us right <laughs> I'm, I'm not trying to offend anybody at all i'm yeah. just you know telling what i what we found through documenting history we're using primary source material we're using their own books and we're determining you know that there's there is a methodology here to overtake the united states through through manipulation of the us constitution through changing history through changing what it means to be free to change the definition of what a republic is to change the definition of democracy. Okay. So whenever we see new, it's implied motion. Okay. And that's progressivism. Mm -hmm. So when you look at Hillary Clinton, she's running in 2016 against Trump. Her logo was a blue H with a red arrow in it. And that's, that really indicates to anybody, the symbology of progressivism. So, I mean, it's it's not a surprise, I don't think that you know Biden and Kamala Harris are also you know progressives.
0: So it's funny that even in the name, I mean, it implies this progress. Yeah. So we're we're moving forward into a better place, which is yeah. you know it, it links back to me. I've been thinking a lot about the the utopianism in a lot of this too, or the idealism. Where, of course, I mean, it's it, it's easy to come up with a with an argument that that presents it's not even an argument it's it's easy to paint a picture that says if you do you know if you do what i tell you the world's going to be perfect and everything's going to be great you know yes. and this gets into you get into uh in the series in some of the videos about how uh they're they're basically taking advantage of people's empathy they're they're trying to get them out of their logical brain and into this emotional space where they start to feel like they're good people if they believe in progress. Mm-hmm. And it's all explained in these in these books. And whenever you want to get to it, I also want to talk about Walter Lippmann specifically, maybe Edward Bernays. But these guys are talking about I mean Walter Lippmann. I didn't even really realize this. I knew he was a propagandist, but he's considered the father of modern journalism. Yes, and his he's book openly, openly talking about right. propaganda, propagandizing yeah,
1: people. So when you read this book and then you understand that they're actually using this in media studies, you can st- you can start to see why the media is so corrupted now because yeah. this has been their 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 school of thought, right? And so much of the same way that. Uh, what they talk about is a universal liberal mind. So when we talk about a one world government, right, it's all going to break down to a one monetary system. It's going to break down to a one government, but it all, for it all of it to work, it has, to, we have to, the population has to be of one hive mind. And they've, they chose the liberal mind mm-hmm. long before the house of truth. This goes back, you know, probably 150, 200 years. And I bet you, if I continue to research, this goes back thousands of years. Just approach well, to liberalism. I
0: actually feel like what's happening right now in in my bones, it feels more like, uh, you know, people are talking about the potential rise of fascism right now. I mean, with the Mm -hmm. lockdowns and the mandates and everything else that's going on, but um, it's not really like a national socialism. It reminds me a lot more of the French Revolution and the Jacobin movement. So that does, you know, Mm -hmm. going back 200 years plus, 230 years now, because they use almost the exact same kind of language, you know, liberty, fraternity, Unity, uh, yep. The same. Right? Unity's the, same. the other one, right? Yep. Now, what right. I'm
1: finding, and I'm going to just say this: I don't care who I offend, but I've been going to rallies here in my hometown, and they're getting good. They're getting big, and it's like yeah. I was down there for two hours. So home. you're,
0: and you're just so people know you're in Canada. Of course, the truckers' yep. thing is going on, going strong yep. right now. Yep.
1: Yep. And so, uh, yeah, I don't know what I was going to say there. <laughs>
0: Well, it was going to be offensive, so. <laughs> oh.
1: It was going to be I don't.
0: <laughs> the uh, uh, ultimately, I mean, I you know, and I I don't want to interrupt too much and I want you to just fill us in on the history that you've covered, but um what fascinates me I think the most is that these guys basically openly talk about uh while at the same time the verbiage and the language is we love the common man, we're doing this to help the poor yeah. uh, the, the progressive movement is about you know the wealth inequality and helping people out And then behind the scenes in their own language, they're talking about how the necessity of propaganda I mean it's essentially I think the fabian socialism, this idea that behind the scenes we're gonna have this we're gonna build socialism and we're gonna kind of, manipulate or fool the public or engineer it really is a scientific this is when they start openly discussing scientifically engineering public behavior and it's just way out in the open like they're they're not talking about individuals choosing progressivism they're talking about using propaganda to manufacture progressivism
1: yeah Yeah. and so you're talking about walter Lippmann, and you can find all of this personified in him Right, and so in public opinion, he puts forth this idea that society has gone, has gotten to be so complex that the the normal, ordinary, average Joe can't keep up, and so this is how they infuse that belief system into society: is that it's far too complicated for the ordinary, average Joe to understand, so we're going to have to rely on the expert, and this is this is a theme throughout public opinion, uh-huh. and so in that book, he. Coins the term stereotype and manufacture of consent. And manufacture of consent, I found an earlier uh, reference to that in the book before, Liberty in the News. So Hmm. it's actually, it goes back even further. If you wanted to find the the source of that term and who coined it, it's Walter Lippmann for certain, but it's even earlier than most think. And so one of the things that surprised me about Walter Lippmann was just how influential he was. He wrote the 14 points for Woodrow Wilson. You know, he's he's the primary oh, author. Oh wow! Okay, and so he's also having uh, he's he's a member of multiple gentlemen's clubs, Metropolitan Club, the Players Club, all of these New York dinner clubs that are very private and very secretive. And so it's one place that we would really not rather see our journalists, you know, rubbing shoulders with the elites at their at their secret right. Title clubs yet he, he did this and still to this day some hundred years after he started his career uh, mainstream historians debate on whether he's an insider or an outsider so <clears throat> he's very influential in policy he's not just talking about it and criticizing but he's writing for presidents he, he wrote 14 points which is the 14 points is actually a, the, the culmination of the inquiries uh, study And these were the recommendations after a year and a half of study leading up to the Paris Peace Conference. They recommend uh, that the world would run better if there was certain things changed in it. And this this turns into the 14 points, which turns into the League of Nations, which which ultimately is canceled because it goes against the very U.S. Constitution. But uh, it is really the precursor to the U.N., there's a direct line of proof that goes all the way from 14 points to the United Nations today. So you can see why he's influential. He's really steered the direction of 20th century journalism, certainly. But I think even his influences uh, spill outside of of what anybody would expect. You know, mm-hmm. he was military intelligence. He was a captain. He, he uh, went to Europe. Uh, it just before the armistice to spread propaganda, this is all admitted, I've got it all off of uh, Yale archives, it's just documented historical fact, that he was writing the propaganda leaflets that were being dropped from planes over the enemy lines to try to, in, uh, to uh, intimidate the Germans. And, you know, there's a lot of secrecy about that time there. A lot of people are wondering what exactly happened because he leaves and comes back, and then when he comes back from Paris, he's so disillusioned that this is where he writes public opinion. He realizes uh, because of the propaganda of the Paris Peace Conference, and this is the same realization that Edward Bernays has from Paris: is that why don't if we can influence people during times of war so effectively, can we do this during times of peace? Right. And so they tried it, and they figured out that it really works well. And so here we are with it. This is uh, this creation of circumstances is very Bernaysian, right? And so we see that all the time in our world, just the creation of circumstances, the elaboration of facts to to help create something so that they can make moves off of that.
0: Right? Yeah, so, and manufacture the consent. I mean, that's just the yeah, thing. The, yeah. the anti-democratic Mm-mm. and anti-rational. Like they, they don't. It's not like people have this belief that we live in a society where we all get our news and then we all make choices and then we all vote and then you know and this is how the process of democracy works and that hasn't i mean these guys changed that entirely 100 100 plus years ago it's never
1: been in your lifetime or our grandparents lifetime right the news has never really told the truth and so that was one of the things as my research kept going back because we decided to just chase sources. So we started it today and we've been going back and seeing how far this goes. And that's the one, one of the things we discovered. Now, the other thing I wanted to mention about Lippman is he's close personal. You mentioned Fabianism. Well, mm-hmm. he's close personal friends with Graham Wallace. When he goes to Europe, he stays at Graham Wallace's house and crashes there for weeks at a time. They're like really close friends. I've got pictures, super interesting pictures of Lippmann with Graham Wallace that I've never seen publicly, but I found them off the Yale archives. I just haven't, I haven't uh, published them yet, but they're just amazing. Oh, wow. You want to so, tell
0: people about Graham Wallace?
1: Well, Graham Wallace is a founder of the Fabian Society, really, is you know, some might consider Sidney and Beatrice Webb and others to be, but he's right there. He's involved mm-hmm. in all of it, you know, and and so when we're talking about the Fabian socialist party we we also have to understand that that's the british labor party that's the beginning of the british labor party
0: right Right. so this is the
1: this is the other interesting thing doug is that the house of truth it's not just frankfurter Lippmann, brandeis oliver wendell holmes but it's also eustace percy and lord lothian philip kerr so these are roundtable members that are mentioned in carol quigley's books tragedy and hope and the uh anglo-american establishment especially so this really was surprising, too, that we have British.
0: And those dialect. are people connected with Cecil Rhodes. So this is a, yeah, this these is a direct are, these line to. Yeah, these
1: table members. Yeah, these. And so you also see this once the inquiry gets involved, is that it, they're, they're all Anglophiles. They're all pushing for this uh, American-British uh, reunion is what right. they were calling it back in the day. Not an Anglo-American establishment like we're used to, but they were calling it an Anglo-American reunion. This is their language that I found. And, and a lot of these guys in the inquiry, like George Louis Beer, is like the most uh, educated person on colonial policy and how it relates to the Americas. He spent the large majority of his life up until that point uh, studying all of that and understanding it. And that's the big reason why he is actually uh, involved in Paris. And he becomes the liaison between this House of Truth group and the inquiry. And then the rounds table. Interesting. And and a lot of these guys are actually ministers without portfolio. They don't even have a, a label. And Brandeis is there too. Like America recognizes Brandeis as an unofficial member of the Woodrow Wilson administration. This is just, this was common knowledge. This is what people knew back in the day. And so you see,
0: can I can I ask you about uh, the connection between? So what I mean, my interpretation of this is, there essentially you're talking about, especially um, with Cecil Rhodes' influence, who was just super promoting, basically ensuring that the British Empire w- remained cohesive. Mm-hmm. What's what's the connection between this and the eugenics movement that were basically, you know, saying that these people, the Anglo-American mm-hmm. well, race, is is the superior race, and getting yeah. into all of that kind of sure. That kind Same of themes. thing, scientific evolution of, yep. of, of all of the racial uh, stereotypes that ended up culminating, of course, in, with fascism in, in Nazi Germany.
1: Yeah, It's all part find, of this. Yeah, and you can find that in their language as well, hmm. because they use the terminology backwards races. So right. they right. really present this problem that all of the other countries are backwards, and they're not being ruled properly. And so once they get infused with this British, imperi- or, this British um, or American exceptionalism, then the world's going to run a lot better. And this was Cecil Rhodes' dream. And so he dies in 1902. And so uh, Alfred Milner is, is the next guy that takes over. Rhodes and Milner are super close friends. Cecil Rhodes says that whatever Milner says, then that's what I say. He admits this in his in his books. And so Alfred Milner is in Paris. He's one of the major mm-hmm. guys right beside David Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister. And he's, again, a minister without portfolio. He's just somebody that's there. And and so a lot of the rounds table members are there. And then on the flip side, on the American side, there's a lot of American uh, rounds table members because it's not just in Britain this roundtable movement actually covers all the Commonwealth. So mm-hmm. they have one in Australia, one in Canada, one in New Zealand. And so,
0: and this was all funded by the will of Cecil Rhodes, by, by Rhodes money.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, yes, I would say that it is at that point. Yeah, for sure. Okay. I mean, he, this is with the Rhodes scholarship. So mm-hmm. when we see somebody like Rachel Maddow in front of the, the, the screen, we know that she comes from the same school of thought as Cecil Rhodes in that we want to bring Britain and America together. Now, a lot of people today would say, well, what's wrong with that? That's, hmm. that seems normal. Well, that's because we grew up in it in the 1850s or, and earlier it was not, I mean, when you look back at the origins of America, it was to get rid of, or to get away from the rule of Britain. I think this is really what he, what they meant by saying that, uh, all men are created equal in, in that they wanted to it wasn't necessarily racist It was that they were trying to get away from Britain. And now that's my own sort of take on it. Yeah,
0: well, now, you talk about in one of the uh, one of the videos that the it was sort of the beginning, one of the historians within the House of Truth was already going back and, and sort of revising the whole mythology around the american revolution. and And it just it kind of reminded me of a lot of what's going on now where a lot of people are questioning, you know the motives of the founding fathers for example and getting away you know well they were all slave owners which clearly is unethical behavior but not focusing on the unethical or hypocritical behaviors rather than focusing on like yeah but you know the declaration of independence does have some good ideas in it
1: (laughs) yeah and so you're talking about charles beard you're talking about james harvey robinson and these are both uh they're, they're both considered fo- founding fathers of the progressive movement, just sort of in different aspects. Mm-hmm. And so James Harvey Robinson is the one that, that authors the new history. Okay, so he's, he's offering a whole new history. And Charles Beard actually is the one that he goes and reinterprets the U.S. Constitution. And there's, there's so much conflict here, even within the faculty of Columbia University, that it creates a huge cat, uh, huge fight In fight in columbia and beard and robinson both leave and what do they form together but the new school for social research Hmm. right and so this is kind of the precursor to when in the 30s a lot of these marxist intellects come over and start working in columbia university as part of the new school this is the the uh university of exile right this is where rockefeller funded a lot of these marxists to come and they they set up shop at columbia the frankfurt school right so right you know you see the the
0: yeah and it's so fascinating to me again i just want to emphasize all of this is being funded by the billionaire class like no this is not yeah. a movement from the people <laughs> this is billionaires no. hiring you know really intelligent academics from ivy league schools to manufacture a progressive movement for them that's what's going on in this yeah. in this time period yeah it's not grassroots. still going on today yeah not yeah, yeah. not grassroots no
1: not at all no nope. they were doing it on purpose and and uh you know it's 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 socialism the one thing too that people might have a issue with and this is one of the surprising things in my research that i found too is that the imagery of socialism we think that it we I don't know if it's at least myself, when I think I used to think of it, the phantasm that would pop into my head would be like old Russian, you know, turn of the century stuff. But really we need to look at socialism as the cutting edge of technology because, you know, the Macy conferences, all of that really started uh, getting technology to help the socialist movement. Mm -hmm. So the efficiency well, movement turns into the technocratic movement. And this exact, is really the socialists starting to control everything,
0: right? That's just it. Like we can see the lineage to what we're talking about today. Um, you know, the concerns about blockchain data collection or central bank digital currencies that are going to be programmable and, and we're all going to be on a universal basic income where they're mm-hmm. using these mono or 5G and robots now. I mean, this is all, you know, and and then the transhumanist movement i mean everything we're dealing with now the line goes straight back to these guys and there's this combination which is why it's so interesting to me that i hear people of the progressive mind discuss um libertarian philosophy or free market philosophy as like this this capitalistic machine like it's never been the free marketers that have advocated for this kind of behavior but it's all over the social i mean Marx called it scientific socialism, and right. he, in his writings, advocate essentially for social engineering. We need to eliminate the indigenous cultures of the place after the communist revolution and indoctrinate them with the new communist model of of thinking. Yeah. Um, so this is all coming from this, you know, this side of, of the left-right divide, if you will. Mm-hmm. I don't personally like to think of, of libertarianism or, or free market thinking. It uh, doesn't really come from the dialectic thinking at all it comes from natural law theory developed prior to any of that mm-hmm. hundreds of years before hegel but um but this dialectic is alive and well within the progressive movement and they're continuing to exploit these
1: sure.
0: these concepts uh and it and it is the machine it's consistently the machine it goes it starts with taylorism mm-hmm. and it ends with transhumanism where we're all just Plugged into the Borg, we're, and and we're working for the man. You know? yep. and
1: it's and <laughs> you know the, the efficiency system. movement, and and taking the rugged individual of prior to that, the rugged American individual who was who would uh, use his own labor to benefit himself. Now he's gone into a factory where there's division of labor, where he's only responsible for a little small part of something that he didn't create. Right. Well, we see this assault on the individual right there. But at the same time, we see the human for the first time interacting with machine. So you're totally correct that when you can see a total line from from 1900, even or even 10 years prior to that, this technological movement. Yeah. And today with full spectrum dominance, total information awareness, the grid surveillance and all of it. It's uh, same with, you know, Bowman is one of the other stories we get into, and he really helps create the international map of the world and this is the origins of of the surveillance grid and, and just right, having every, the whole world mapped so you can you can see everything on a military sort of level interesting right? they, yeah yeah they made it so that you could see every every uh, detail on the shoreline so you you would know where the safest places to land they really looked at it this is really the birth of geopolitics too right so this this time period is really incredible
0: well and so much of these technologies now are, are dual use and they all come out of the you know the mil- it's this this relationship yeah. with the military and then the military industrial complex that kind of grows it's it's i think it it again my interpretation is basically it starts with the civil war but um by world yeah. war 1 you know after every big war these guys cash in and they have another huge pile of money and they start another you know mm-hmm. uh, another big social experiment and then world war 2 and then and yeah. and now it it's you know it seems to me that all they they can really control with with military money the direction that that the technologies are going forward i mean this is how i think Actually, it's a whole other question in, in and of itself: is how how do societies uh, advance or evolve technologically? But clearly, our technology comes right out of the military,
1: sure.
0: uh, and then it's given to you know corporate corporations that that centralize the the production, and and then it gets out as a dual use technology to the rest of the public once the military deems it you know unnecessary for its military applications anymore but it's amazing to see these connections Mm -hmm. and then those connections with the progressive movement essentially Mm -hmm. i mean with 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 progressivism and these concepts of technocracy uh that have come right out of of this period in the 1920s right after world war one and right before world war one where they really kind of started amping all of this social engineering and propaganda work and manufacture of consent So that they're creating our culture now. Like it's not, it's no longer, as you say, the rugged individual, which now gets such a bad rap. People think of the rugged individual as the, I mean, I hear people talk about, the individual the, the the rugged individual mythology is those are the the colonial imperialists who are enslaving the indigenous right. peoples and it's like mm. you know actually and 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 that point that you make about alienation too that's often blamed on quote unquote capitalism or the free market and the solution is this sort of progressive utopia but the alienation was actually caused by this efficiency movement that yeah. was that was all part and parcel of the progressive movement from from yeah. birth yeah, it's it's really interesting to me. And you know, the progressive movement is really a
1: British idea. Hmm. It's not American. So, you know, eighteen fifties is really the birth of the the tax free foundation. That's uh, Peabody, right? It all stems from there. The uh, ameliorate the poor was really his the the stated purpose there. And you can see that then America adopts that idea and they and they bring it over. And so I think that this, this is really Uh, one of the ways that they thought that they could sort of put British and American thought in parallel and then bring them together.
0: Mm -hmm. Interesting.
1: Yeah. And so uh, when we talk about a hundred years of hindsight and how this is beneficial to us today, there's a perfect example can be found in standard oil. Okay. Now this, uh, the antitrust, the Sherman antitrust movement, Okay, this was all part of the, the, the uh, progressive movement, right? And trying to
0: moderate
1: private companies.
0: Right. And it's so interesting that so many people think that like the robber barons stopped with the antitrust legislation and and the good guys won. And no. that, you're right. That was not yeah, the so, case. The rich right. guys got richer off of well, all of that, manipulated the whole thing. The progressive movement or the the populist movement basically ended with that because the I think the propaganda at the time was wow. that, oh, yeah, you know, it was sort of like that was their bone that they threw at the populist movement we'll 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 break up these big companies then um but then it didn't stop it didn't end any of this it was just getting started
1: yeah and you look at standard oil and everybody to this day if you were to ask them they would say yeah well they you know they curbed that kind of activity through the antitrust laws and they had to break up standard oil and so we won there but that's not actually the case John D. Rockefeller won large because what they did was they just split it up into several other companies. And so when you look at, you know, America today, it's 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 dominated by three gas and oil companies, BP, Exxon and Chevron. And those are all standard oil. Uh, they've just been renamed. Right. So right. he still has uh, a monopoly on all of that. It just it it may not appear so but you know a little bit of research and it doesn't take much and you can see that nothing's really changed
0: yeah yeah it's it's so fascinating to me that there's basically like this progressive mythos that says that the progressive movement has functioned to curb the the excesses of these capitalist robber barons and a lot of it stems on this concept that you know yeah we fought and we won for these antitrust laws and now you know we have to have the government here to stop the corporations from getting out of control. Um, but that's not what's happened at it's all. What happened. What's happened is, and what happened then was that the these corporate, these robber barons took more and more control over the government. And now again, like talking about the public private partnerships, yeah. it's the guy go- I've been calling it the government corporate complex. Like yeah, right. this is the same thing. Like the idea of saying, you know, people on the right want the, free market which apparently is the corporations i mean none of it actually makes sense when you start thinking about it and then the people on the left promote you know big government to curb yeah. the excesses of the corporate free market right. none of that has to do with an actual free market and the truth is if the corporations or the government get bigger the rich guys win out the end you know
1: yeah. well and so
0: they've been well, rigging the, the one thing about progressivism
1: the sorry the the one thing about progressivism this motion too, that we'll notice nowadays is that it it leaves no time for questioning. So we see that with, with a lot of these uh, ideas that are being put into our society, like human caused global warming, you know, there's never really been a debate on any of that. And it's, and it's, and essentially it's because they use progressivism. We're just going to move forward. We're moving forward. We don't have time to debate. The science is settled.
0: Well, you know, we saw that
1: are safe and effective. And it's it's really they they it's weaponized progress almost right it's like they it's it's almost you you're considered an old man and you you're you're not with the times yeah right? these right. are all the the phrases that they use and you as long as there's implied motion then it's progressivism.
0: Yeah, I mean, we saw that with the the lockdowns and the mm-hmm. state of emergency and, mm-hmm. and all of this. I mean, I, I was just shocked. I mean, they, they took away uh, here in the United States. We clearly in the Bill of Rights have the right of assembly. Interestingly, they took our right of assembly away right before they implemented 5G, which I think there would have been some political pushback, some rallies right. going on if uh, that hadn't been the case. But they took it away and there wasn't a peep. There was no conversation. There wasn't anything other than exactly what you're saying. We have to work. It's, you know, we have to stand together as a community to fight this, uh, the viral spread. And we don't have time to have these conversations and discussions. And so we have to put the democracy on hold and we have to do what we're told by the scientific elite. It's sales tactics, right? Yeah. Same
1: thing a salesman does. Limited time offer right (laughs) right time's ticking we've got to keep moving and so what it does is it eliminates debate and it and it eliminates other viewpoints other than that that's dominant and so when you own the media and and all of that it becomes very easy to establish narratives and so you know it's important to really see everything for what
0: it is it is i mean i sometimes wonder because i mean it's if the whole mainstream media is essentially propaganda and Mm -hmm. there's a pretty solid argument for that, I mean, then how much of what most people think and feel is just kind of being fed to them in a way that there is no real dialogue going. I mean, there's no critical thinking, there's no dialogue that's happening. And then there's no conversation. I mean, it really is a, I mean, what's the point of democracy? You know, it's all just a show. It's, it's almost sometimes I'm like, wow. I mean, are, people are are wasting so much of their life focusing on a reality that's not real. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. How many memes have been implanted in our brains? How much of our consent has been manufactured without us knowing about it? And that's what's so perverse about this. I mean, you know, we haven't even really touched on. We talked a little bit about the Frankfurt School, but there we're talking about education. So it's not just propaganda in the news, Mm -hmm. but they were really targeting the children Mm -hmm. in terms of like, if we can get them at, at a young age, I just did a. I just did an interview with Lynn Strawn Davenport, who's an education activist, and she's talking about now they talk about cradle to grave, cradle to grave control of, of how people think they're trying to get the kids in preschool. You know, they're trying to get them as early as possible into the mm-hmm. system, but they're able to just manufacture what we think about reality from the time we get into kindergarten, at least until, and even through the university system, it's all plugged into the same thing. It's yep. fascinating to think about what a different world we'd, we'd live in if these yeah. didn't well, have I would
1: say that our society is, is largely militaristic. Yeah. We're compartmentalized. We're driving Hummers. Uh, a lot of the technology was developed from the military. And so we're, we're, we already have a mindset that's ready for war. Whether that's with another country or somebody that opposes your viewpoint, this is really what they've grown is a population of people that are, that are war minded or, you know, you, you can really see it when you start to talk to progressives or, you know, uh, people that, that really still trust the mainstream media. You can see how that really upsets them.
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, I've had the most. You know, this
1: is why that this is why we have such a disconnect is because people are compartmentalized. Yeah, this is what we call echo chambers, right? So they've just, you know, they've they figured out that the proper way to communicate militarily is through compartmentalization and uh, a need to know basis. And so the same way that they wondered if they could use propaganda in peacetimes, they're doing that the same way.
0: Right. So, yeah, that's actually fascinating to think about. And so much of this starts in World War One. World War One, they start with they have a huge military apparatus with basically infinite funding. They really ramp up uh, a lot of this concepts of psychological warfare and propaganda. And you see this whole progressive movement basically is an outgrowth of that. The the same propagandists that were working for the U.S. military uh, are the ones that come out and and start applying the, these techniques. Uh, on the general public in peacetime. And it, it's so right, what you're talking about, the whole society. This is what I I view it in, in terms of like, this is the patriarchal system, that the whole society is treated like it's a military mm-hmm. project. and And then there's a hierarchy and the generals at the top, which are the billionaire class, you know, basically can dictate to the rest of us what we're supposed to think and feel and, and how we're supposed to act. And uh, it just takes our individuality and our humanity out of it. But another thing that's fascinating to me about this, now that we're talking about it, is that part of the mythos of progressivism that I hear so often is that it's the free market. That is militaristic and imperialistic. And it's like, can you, this is all coming from the progressive movement. All of these ideas and all of the money that's funding all of this is coming from the billionaire class. So This has nothing to do with anything free market. And these are the same imperialists, like you talk about the Anglo American establishment. It's all centered around British imperialism, basically. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. it's continuing the process of British imperialism and a, colonialism. Yeah,
1: like, you want to keep going? It,
0: yeah, that's right. Like, what that's what the whole lineage.
1: Modern version of colonialism, mm-hmm. American exceptionalism, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. And that's the function of the smart cities and the and the you know the new central bank blockchain technologies Mm -hmm. to collect the data i mean it's just all part of the same lineage Mm -hmm. that goes back to uh feudal colonialism just like you're Mm -hmm. saying and and the progressive movement is right smack dab in the middle of this this is this is the tool that they're using to colonize uh the the members of the empire you know the serfs in the empire
1: (laughs) yeah and so one important thing probably to get across to people here, especially today, nowadays, which with what is going on, is that they viewed, and this is written in their own books, multiple places that I've found it, where they point to the U.S. Constitution as the biggest obstacle to an international uh, organization. So when they're, they're trying to implement the League of Nations, uh, they're talking when I'm reading James T. Shotwell's book, he's a member of the Inquiry. He's the historian librarian. He's, he's really in the rooms, and he wrote a book called At the Paris Peace Conference. He, he says the term New World Order several times. This is just normal language. Right. Uh, the New World versus the Old World. A lot of these guys write books. Like Bowman wrote a book called The New World. In, in Wilson's New Freedom, the first chapter is The Old World Changeth. Right? And this is where he gets the famous quote. And so when, when James T. Shotwell, he's like the main author of the International Labor Organization because these guys are very interested in labor. And so right. he even says he's credited as being the primary author of the ILO. This is documented historic fact. It's James T. Shotwell. And he says several times in his book that it was the toughest part of the whole thing was to overcome the u.s constitution because all of the other countries in the world didn't have a constitution they were able to to uh accept some of these policies that were international and sort of steering away from the net na- the nation state and
0: and so the this is very
1: encouraging for us today to know that that they 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 even recognized the U.S. Constitution as an, as an obstacle. So I know that there's some debate nowadays as to, you know, the validity of the U.S. Constitution. I hear a lot of criticism of it, but it, it looks to me, same with the Canadian Constitution, the Canadian Bill of Rights. It looks to be, both of those things look to be uh, obstacles even today. So you can see how they've worked on the population to sort of discredit Personal freedoms and right. Oh yeah, with the U.S. Constitution is totally irrational. But this is why, because they they want it, and and this is why I think they're saving the United States and Canada kind of for last is because they're the toughest ones. The other ones they, they should be able to get roll over, and then the United States. There's going to be a lot of resistance to any experimentation on the U.S. Constitution or elimination of it at this point. Now, right? And they've experimented on this thing for so long that it, uh, you know, I would challenge that it has. As much power as it did before. They've been working on it, right?
0: Well, that was one of the things that really actually, you know, as COVID rolled out, it was my progressive friends that were really like, I hadn't realized that in their minds, they just, so many of them have tossed out the constitution. Like they literally think it's, it's just an old document that was written by slave owners and has no application. And there was no concern for things like the right of assembly or the right of religion. When they, when they stopped letting people go to church, I couldn't believe that they got away with that or the censorship. I've had progressive friends, you know, cheer on the censorship because clearly, you know, it's disinformation. Dr. Fauci says, this is true. Anyone who disagrees must be wrong. And they should be censored. It's just like, um, and that's why I've got to start kind of putting my foot down a little bit and saying, hey, you know, you can't, I mean, first of all, however controlling you want to be, there's always going to be a percentage of the population that's not going to go along with it. So, you know, you can try as hard as you want, but people are autonomous human beings, at least until they hold us down and plug us straight into the Borg, Mm -hmm. which is what they're going for. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. what they're trying to do. But, you know, life finds a way. And so we're going to figure out uh, how to get away from this. But uh, yeah, just fascinating to me when now when I talk about the Constitution with people um, and I do live in a largely progressive community, so I don't usually just talk politics with any right. you know, when I go out. But uh, I'm just shocked at how few people in this community, you know, they're ready to throw it out. And it's amazing. I mean, we'd be and I mean, I, you know, what's amazing, like you're talking about. America is still stands. Even Canada has been hammered more by the mandates and lockdowns, but look what happened to Australia. My God, because they've taken the guns. Yeah, They took the guns and they could just get away with anything there. I mean, I don't know what I'd be doing if I lived in Australia right now. Like they just shut that country down and started arresting people who, you know, didn't wear a mask or didn't, you know, follow orders or aren't getting vaccinated. I mean, it's just amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, what they've been able to accomplish there, and we can be thankful that they they haven't been able to do that here. And hopefully, I mean, it looks like maybe we're going to get a bit of a reprieve until maybe the Ukraine war, or the global warming, or the economic collapse, or the next big mm-hmm. thing. You know that that then they'll, they'll continue this totalitarian tiptoe as we describe it um but yeah i mean i gotta tell you it was frightening for me to see how how many people have been convinced that the constitution and the bill of rights uh have just have no importance that there really should be no boundary between the individual and the and the state that the state should be allowed to control i mean i don't understand how they you know they say they don't believe in the constitution Because a lot of the founding fathers engaged in hypocritical actions like owning slaves, and then they say, So let's toss it out so we can all be slaves to the government. I mean, I I just it doesn't make sense. And again, it's part of this progressive mythology that is emotional. I mean, you bring it up. It's they're they're taking, they're manipulating people's emotions to make them feel virtuous when they think like this. But it's all—it's all been like this has been a manufacture of consent that's been going on for for over a hundred years now. It's mm. fascinating to see, and it's worked, and now sure. it's worked on a lot of people.
1: Yep. And progressivism—it—it it works in a lot of different ways. So when we look at the difference today between the the definition of classic liberalism, right, and what it is today, you see the meme. There's a Hummer. Hummer vehicle beside a Volkswagen and, and the bumper stickers on it are different. And, and so we wonder how the definition of liberalism changed so much. Right. And these guys had a big part to do with that. So uh, Walter Lippmann in the thirties, they have a, a, it's a, it's a meeting that they have. I can't remember the name of it. It's, it's a funny name, but it's, it's named after Walter Lippmann, mm-hmm. And so, they have this week long meeting or something, Karoke, Walter Lippmann, I think. And this is where the, the, the birthplace of the term neoliberal comes from. Hmm. And so he starts affecting the definition of conservatism, conservatism later in his career. In the 30s, he starts going after that definition, after already flipping liberalism in, into the progressive sense of it all and right. away from the classic liberal. So we've gone from. Because classic liberal is more of the negative rights, Uh, so power to the individual.
0: Right. I mean, that's what the Constitution is based on.
1: Yeah, but now we look at the definition of liberalism as as strong centralized government, which is a total flip.
0: Yeah. Right? So... this they inversion this. is something that well, I've known. I mean, it's something that people are starting to really pick up on, like the, this this inversion of language where mm. it's all of a sudden it's like, I mean, that's... Very important to know. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that I've been, again, like this this progressive mythos. I, I'll have conversations with people and I'll be like, you know, the, the classical liberalism is and individual rights based on the state of nature this is the, the like, anti patriarchal anti militaristic you know and then somebody it's almost like you're just getting gaslit right back at you they'll yeah. they'll use my same language and then be like no 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 that's you you know right yeah <laughs> and yeah. it's i i think they're projecting their stuff on me i mean i've had to act i mean i because i've gone through the process because i use tools like the trivium and i really watch out for logical fallacies and i mm-hmm open-minded to the opposite uh, uh the possibility of my own cognitive dissonance and my own confirmation bias you know I've analyzed this and i finally had to come to the conclusion that like I don't think I'm the crazy one here like yeah right <laughs> I right. think that my point of view is pretty valid and these people are gaslighting and projecting onto me all of these very evils I mean and that's why I wanted to have you on the show to talk about the history of this like if you look at the his look at it like mm-hmm. all, all of this. Do. Is comes from the progressive movement from the 1920s, clearly funded by the billionaire class. So if you're talking about late-stage capitalism or the centralization of the means of production or all these terrible things that happened, it's happened using progressivism. Yes. It hasn't happened because the libertarians are on top of the political yep. system right now, right? I mean. Yes. <laughs> and so
1: there's two things I want to mention here because Walter Littman, in his book, he mentions the social scientist as being the answer to straightening out all of the societal woes. And so he he identifies the, the social scientist as as what he calls the entering wedge. Hmm. Okay. And this is actually a chapter out of public opinion. And he talks about in in implementing the expert in between the ordinary average Joe and the truth. Right? So right. Uh, yeah. And the other fascinating thing here to remember is that these roommates that were at the House of Truth in 1912, 1913, 1914, they all become major players at the Paris Peace Conference. So Felix Frankfurter is like a rover go-between. He's really officially kind of a member of the, the Zionist delegation, but he's, he's a member of the American government. Mm-hmm. And so... He he's the one that talks to Prince Faisal. And I, I believe that he's the one that uh stabs Faisal in the back. Hmm. It's it's Frankfurter that is that meets with Faisal.
0: Who's Faisal?
1: Um, Prince Faisal. This is where the Sykes Pico agreement. This is really where the Middle East Eastern war right, starts. Okay. Yeah. Right. And so uh yeah, is mean,
0: there. I don't uh, think a lot of people understand just how much the, the that um, that meeting in Paris. I mean, they d- divided wow. up the world for the Anglo-American establishment after World War One. I. I mean, it wow. was the yeah the creation of the whole 20th century happened in that. Yep,
1: it's the creation of Israel. It's the U.S. It's it's all the modern creations of the U.S. intelligence. Uh, U.S. foreign policy is really born at this time. This is the first time an American president sets foot on foreign soil Mm -hmm. as as far as a political movement. uh, It's the creation of Israel. U.S. Intelligence Agency really starts here with the inquiry. The the Council on Foreign Relations, a lot of these members of the inquiry are, are founding members of the CFR, including Walter Lippmann. Okay, even his historian Ronald Steele—he's the defin- they call him the definitive biographer of Lippmann—and he states that Lippmann is a founding father of the CFR, and that is true because he's the first guy to start organizing information at the New York Public Library, okay, in preparation for the peace talks. And this is really where I believe this is where the modern deep state takeover, this invisible government, really began, mm-hmm. because it's it's this group of Uh, Ivy League experts that are well versed in the liberal arts that become the expert to Wilson. This is the, the personal advisors. And so the, his whole administration actually gets pushed to the side and there's, there's conflict there because these, this inquiry group is looked at as as a bunch of amateurs, but really America had no foreign policy uh, experience up until then. They had a few guys, but, in comparison to france and britain of course they were just kind of rookies and so they leaned on these guys because of that and the the amazing part is when you get to paris okay so we mentioned eustace percy's living at at the house of truth but eustace percy is like he's right in there he's got the ear of david lloyd george so does uh uh kerr Philip Kerr, Lord Lothian. Okay, he's another resident at the at the House of Truth. These are both roundtables members. They're they're right in tight with uh, Alfred Milner. Um, Walter Lippmann is there. Uh, Brandeis is is not there, but he's working through Felix Frankfurter. Uh, and a lot of these guys, uh, Loring C. Christie's a Canadian, but he's also a resident at the house of truth. Now he's at Paris and he's, uh, the Canadian prime minister's right-hand man. So all of these guys end up right in, right beside the, the, the men of control there. Uh, these men of control lean on these experts and these advisors from the inquiry. And, and really these guys remap all of central Europe. They really remap the whole world, uh, they're really the authors of the Second World War because they, they, they write the Treaty of Versailles, and that's obviously meant to start another war the way that they just, they pinned Germany down and, mm-hmm. and wouldn't let them free. It really, uh, it really caused, you know, the rise of Hitler when you really look at it. And, and the Second World War, so.
0: If you are listening to this, you are listening to the first free hour of The Shift with Doug McKenty. For access to the full feature-length versions of the podcast, go to www.theshiftnow.com and subscribe for the audio version for just $6 a month. Access the full-length episodes in video form through Rockfin.com by subscribing at The Shift with Doug McKenty landing page. For $9.99 a month, you gain access not only to The Shift, but also all other premium content material hosted on the platform. Find out more at www.theshiftnow.com backslash store. Detoxify your body, decolonize your mind, make the shift. It's kind of funny. I've had the same experience where it's like, you know, I remember as a kid thinking that was weird. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and then and then when you get older, it's sort of normalized behavior, and that's the way things are. And I don't know. Then you start looking into some of these alternative ways of thinking about things maybe having some discipline about applying the trivia method and you're like no that was weird that didn't make any sense when i was a kid and it doesn't make any sense now
1: (laughs) even u.s foreign policy it doesn't take a genius to see that this isn't right and this is probably what's causing uh a lot of the people to have to flee their homes in the middle east yeah right and so you know uh even when i was a kid the the israeli palestine conflict you know it was fairly easy to see you know yeah. but we just sort of looked the other way and so you know maybe one of the last things i want to say here mm. is is to do with that and we're talking about american foreign policy and so what we actually call that today is wilsonianism hmm. okay so right uh the uh the amazing part about that is that wilson creates he's the first president to travel abroad, this is the birth of American foreign policy, okay, it's called, and so his brand is called Wilsonianism, this is really the progressive variant, right, a, a prepared military, and then uh, uh, a populace that, that is efficient in in the workplace, and so the the interesting thing to me that I found was that Wilsonianism is still used today, this is really the heart of American foreign policy. But Woodrow Wilson is identified personally as a racist now. Hmm. His name has been taken off the Interna- the School of International Studies right. at his alma mater at Princeton. But his concept of Wilsonianism, deeply racist, continues today. Right. And this is and the connection goes all the way to PNAC, right? The Project for a New American Century. This is all it all comes from there.
0: Right. So
1: you know, well, there's something.
0: another the neoconservatives and the neoliberal, like where yeah. where's the language twist there? I mean, to, to my mind, they're about exactly the same.
1: Yes, they are. Yeah, and so that meeting that Walter Lippmann had and the, the birth of neoliberalism, there were some interesting characters there too. And so you can see that he he had some deep influence. You can see why Walter Lippmann's considered today as the founding father of American modern journalism and how public opinion is the number one book on media studies. Yeah. And so you can see now why uh the media is the way it is because, you know, the the TV anchor that you're listening to is schooled on Walter Lippmann. Now, the the other thing about Lippmann is that there's never been anybody like him bef- there was never anybody like him before and there's never been anybody since like him. Uh but I think with this latest Joe Rogan thing is I think that they're trying to uh, create another Walter Lippman because mm. they, I'm sure they look back at Walter Lippman and go, that was effective. Right. <laughs> he had, he had today and tomorrow as a syndicated column for like 30 something years, people would say, well, what, what does Walter say, honey? Like he mm. was really that, that deep influence. There's never been anybody with that kind of influence since. And so I see Joe Rogan kind of in that role because when you look at his influence, it's like it dwarfs everything. Yeah, right? you could combine all the mainstream media together, and he still dwarfs them, and his his viewership. So, I don't trust Joe Rogan, and so I think that this is really the, what they're trying to do is they're trying to recreate, you know, interesting uh, Walter Lippmann's influence and just having everybody go to one guy and you could definitely see where people, where people would say now, well, what does Rogan say? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, what does Joe Rogan say? Because he's, he's being so attacked now. And that, that raises sympathy for him. Right. So People have empathy for Joe Rogan now and they'll defend him. And so I think as we go forward, Doug, watch to see if they really try to put Joe Rogan into this position as premier sort of modern version of where journalism is going.
0: Yeah. So, you know, this brings up such a interesting, I mean, we don't have any time. We got to wrap it up here, but I I think I'm a little bit more sympathetic to Joe Rogan in that I think mm -hmm. was just a common, common Joe. He probably believed most of the, you know, most of the propaganda. I think he still believes most of the propaganda actually, but I think Mm -hmm. that because he does the show, he's actually talked to enough different people that like the doors opened a little, A little bit for him and he's allowed a few of these guys on the show like dr mccullough and dr malone and now he's 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 actually taken the heat for it but but we'll see it's such a difficult world you know because of all the manipulations happening it's actually really difficult to wade our way through right i mean how do we figure out what's authentic and what's not
1: yeah and i would if if given a choice i would definitely take the the media model that rogan is putting forward right because it's a two-way conversation yeah yeah you can be involved in which is much different than the television so in that way i totally i I encourage people to to uh search out not just rogan but other podcasts like that where you can be involved in the conversation because i I think very few people understand the television as a one-way conversation it just tells people what to do
0: yeah you you can tell that
1: all you want but it's not listening. (laughs)
0: so you know well cool Dwayne thanks a lot um yeah I've I've held you on long enough I don't know if we can do it anymore but uh I really appreciate the conversation and I'm really happy actually to make these you know what you've reminded me because I again I've spent so much time kind of like sticking to my libertarian principles but trying to give everybody the benefit of the doubt um mm-hmm. and uh, especially this week with some of the responses to my blog post, which was kind of right. me almost coming out as a libertarian and saying, you know what, I've been thinking about this for a long time, and I, I think this is true. Like you know, mm-hmm. I, I think I think there's a perspective that's real here, and then there's mm-hmm. another one that's not. And having you come on, because again, you know, so many people seem to think that it's this capitalist machine that is behind imperialism and that progressivism is the solution.
1: Yeah, like and capitalism it, is the motor behind it all.
0: Yeah. Right? And not. when you look at the history of it it's just so clear it's like these guys it's the it's the rich billionaire class that captivated and monopolized the markets in the first place against the libertarians and the populace that were trying to fight them at the time. Uh, They were able to to amass wealth and power because of their connections with government. And then they started to use that wealth and power to uh, manipulate the masses into thinking that slavery actually is freedom. You know, up is down. And now that's what we're dealing with
1: yeah, and we have a hundred years of allowing these people to live out of public purview, uh, constrained only by their own imagination, yeah, right. So here we are a hundred years later, and we can see the results. and and it it's actually all we need to do is just evaluate. And it actually is fairly easy to see where we need to fix things, replace things, keep certain things the same way, right? I think we're we're at a critical point where, it's important not to tear everything down because that's what they want us to do. So we need to identify where exactly, uh, you know, we need to first identify the problems and, and, and eliminate sort of almost surgically, like you were removing cancer,
0: right? right?
1: You identify where the cancer really is and you start to take it. And then you can reevaluate your institutions because I don't think we can live without institutions, even in anarchy, you know, you're going to have, uh, education. Yeah. You're going to have institutions. And so institutions don't have to necessarily be a bad word.
0: No, exactly. I just, you know, then that's where I get into the concept of decentralizing these things though. You know, it's the, I think the issue is when it, that they become so centralized that it's, you know, it's easy for that psychopath eventually is going to find their way to the top of the pyramid. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. so the more decentralized you can make these kind of choices, uh, you can still, you know, you can still build large institutions. They just, you know, can't. you got to
1: watch who you put in charge of them.
0: Yeah. Right? Then you have yeah. to
1: pay attention. you got to be involved in your political process. And then these things are I, far less likely to happen.
0: I really think um, that the institutions really shouldn't grow larger than the city level. I mean, that's kind of where I'm at. I think that when right. you are controlling them, even the state's. I mean, cities actually exist. You can drive, you start seeing buildings, and there's a lot of people here, and that's a city, right? But a state yeah, is yeah. just somebody drew some lines, you know, yeah. or the federal yeah. government, right. like we just drew some lines on a map, like you know, like yeah. Bowman, like yeah. you're talking about, yeah, exactly. And uh, and and it's just a kind of a way to distribute power. It has nothing to do with what's actually there. So, like within this, within mm. the city, within your community, and within a, even a big city, ten million people or twenty million people. Uh, you know, you can have large institutions, but at least it's like a part of your local culture. It doesn't have to grow bigger than that. It's not a transnational corporation or, you know, a government with a massive military that can yeah. conquer well, the I world. think
1: if we were to learn from our history now, right, we would understand the red flags as, as they start happening this yeah. time, right? Whereas, well, I would say that the population knew then, too. But in much the same way, they were suppressed. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, we have one advantage over them in that we have the internet and we have the ability to get all kinds of stuff, you know, to to make an argument. So.
0: Right. You know, well, cool, Dwayne, and uh, right. we'll be we'll be posting this one up on the internet, and hope okay. uh, hope a lot of people check it out. Do you wanna yeah. you want me to send people to the history of propaganda uh, on YouTube, yeah. and you give out your website again? Yeah, maybe? there's
1: three places you can actually come okay. find us. If you want to encourage our work, go to bulletproofpub.com, dot uh, and then history of propaganda. We're on YouTube, and then also our farm, Hell's Half Acre Farms. You can find us on Facebook. Okay. And so, yeah, I really appreciate the time, Doug.
0: Yeah, I do too. Thanks for coming on um, and having this conversation. I think it's actually kind of important. I think that people got us, you know, uh, it was exciting to kind of get back to the trivium and get it all back to the trivium because it really is understanding the logical fallacies is the solution to not being brainwashed by the stuff that people are being affected by so much every day. And once that it propaganda becomes ingrained, it's actually a, just a bad habit to break, you know,
1: mm-hmm. um, but also critical.
0: Yeah. And also just to, to get the history that you've been uncovering behind the progressive movement to show how clearly the upper classes, the predator classes, is using this movement to implement technocracy. That's what we're dealing day, with. Yeah, that's what day. we're dealing with right now is a clear yeah. and present danger. And they've been doing yes. it for 100 plus years now. So,
1: yeah. And the parallels between 1918 and now. Right, Pretty crazy, actually. Incredible.
0: Yeah, no so doubt.
1: This is why this this understanding this era 100 years ago is important because we're we're going through it again.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: So once we understand that, we can recognize today for what it is and then make the proper decisions and maneuver properly.
0: Cool. Well, all right. And I'll Thanks, let buddy. people know, yeah, they've been uh, listening to The Shift. I'm your host, Doug McKinty, and you can find my stuff at www.theshiftnow.com. Uh, I've also just started writing the blog at The Populist Papers on Substack, so you can sign up there. Uh, and have uh, everything that I write go straight to your inbox. Um, And, uh, of course, my stuff is on Odyssey and Rockfin and YouTube and all of your favorite podcast hosting sites, so you can check me out there. But theshiftnow.com is a place to go. Uh, You can sign up for the newsletter. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, everybody, for watching, and thanks, Dwayne, for coming on. Great conversation. Keep up the good work. Peace, Doug. You too. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. That's my conversation with Dwayne Hayes. I wanted to have him back on the show. I had him, I think he was like episode 25, a long time ago, because I was really looking for someone who had done some research on uh, the elite foundations and the public-private partnerships and how these elite foundations have been involved in... uh, Steering behind the scenes so much of what ended up being the 20th century, in fact, steering them towards these uh, these progressive policies that we've uh, that we've seen uh, over the last hundred years become more and more part of uh, government and how it works. And uh, also, uh, Dwayne is a real big advocate of the triv- trivium system of education, which is something that uh, I'm also all about, which uh, combines uh, grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Uh, in a form of pedagogy that teaches people how to think for themselves, Uh, something that I think is extremely unfortunate, uh, is no longer taught when public education came over uh, and became dominant uh, in no small part due to the work of these very progressives that we talked about in this interview. Uh, They implemented uh, basically uh, indoctrination techniques based principally on uh, operant behavioral conditioning created by B.F. Skinner Uh, In the 1950s, by the 1960s, they were implementing these indoctrination techniques into public education rather than the critical thinking skills that were prominent from ancient times until really just uh, the last 150 years or so. So uh, that was an important conversation, but I was happy to see that Dwayne had started to do some more work. He's very busy during the summer times because he's an organic farmer. But uh, over this winter, he started producing more and more uh, of these videos on the history of propaganda channel that uh, we're really diving into the uh, the beginnings of the progressive movement in the United States, and lo and behold, it happens again, as so many other things did. The Rockefeller medicine system, uh, we're seeing the beginning of public education uh, with. Um, the creation of the Federal Reserve and then the tax-exempt foundation system, which allows the upper classes to invest their funds in these tax-exempt um, um, foundations, that allow them to tax-free essentially engage in all manner of social engineering, as I think most of us know. Although a lot of people still think they have these uh, for some reason, and then for some reason, a lot of um, well. Maybe not. Uh, maybe not so mysteriously. After you hear this interview, um, a lot of progressives really believe that these foundations have only the most altruistic. Um, um, reasons for existing and that these billionaires who apparently make their money through cutthroat capitalistic tactics suddenly become uh, these incredibly charitable human beings once they establish one of these tax-exempt foundations. But right after that, we see uh, the development of this organization called the House of Truth. And then these groups of socialists that start to meet uh, and develop and they're writing books and um, and they're getting involved in the, uh, in the Woodrow Wilson um, presidency uh, and really starting to directly uh, influence um, public policy in this way. And this, I think, is a great example of what we now see as these public-private partnerships that are such a huge part of putting Agenda 21 together, uh, of um, working with governments to implement all of these technocratic changes that we're seeing in the world today. So there's clearly this uh, social engineering agenda at work. Um, And I was excited to see that he's done this. As you all know, if you've been paying attention to my work, um, I'm becoming more and more for so long, I was really trying to find a compromise between the left and the right. And I just haven't been able to become convinced that uh, certain libertarian principles, especially the non-aggression principle, uh, suddenly become this capitalist system of colonization that I keep hearing over and over again from my progressive friends. And I've been involved, I wanted to let you know, in this Facebook page called Compassionate Anarchy, probably for like 10 years. (coughs) And uh, I wanted to get on this anarchist page because I was hoping to kind of really get the arguments from both sides of the, of the most idealistic type uh, of both progressive and capitalist. You know, both sides of the left-right paradigm, and and what are the arguments to say that one is superior to the other? And uh, more and more, you know, there was this con- constant conflict between the anarcho-capitalists and the anarcho-communists, which just kind of blew my mind, because it's like, how many anarchists are there in the world? Shouldn't you guys all just be working together to decentralize the state? But no, you know they have to argue with each other constantly. I'm seeing the same thing in the what I'm calling now the populist movement amongst the those of us who have woken up to the propaganda that's so dominant now in in the narrative, in the corporate narrative, um, and are trying to figure out ways to solve this problem. Like, what are we going to do to liberate the masses from this uh, incredible misinformation campaign that we're exposed to daily if you ingest any of this corporate government uh, media that is feeding the misinformation and and not giving us the full picture and not asking us to make choices for ourselves, but instead, again, indoctrinating all of us uh, with a particular point of view that speaks to Clearly, this upper class agenda, right? And so, going back uh, during those conversations and that left-right paradigm debate, it just started to become more and more clear to me that the the progressives had, like, or the the anarcho-communists in this scenario had a, a mythology about free market capitalism that just I could never see that it was actually true, and. And yet, they were they were dedicated to it. I mean, if you if you doubt this historiosity, this paradigm that you know, if you have a free market, there's a dog eat dog world out there. There's gonna people are gonna compete with each other. The strongest will survive. They'll dominate, and uh, and then those people will end up controlling everybody. And you have this system, this modern day system of corporatism, and colonialism, imperialism that is devastating uh, the world today, which that is clearly true, right? I mean, the the question is not what is actually happening today. We mostly agree. The question is, what are the solutions to that? And the libertarians would say the solution is to decentralize power into a free market, get rid of this, uh, essentially this protection racket that is monopolizing power in the hands of the few. And sure, they're using these uh, you know, the monopolization of currency to, to uh, centralize the finances so that they can uh, essentially uh, keep more for themselves, just like any gang, just like any protection racket. So you eliminate the protection racket, you allow the market to be a free market, and then the system starts to work naturally like it's supposed to, to the benefit of the common people. Um, but it was like trying to get that through to these left-wing people... Uh, it was just impossible. I mean, they would just, they laugh and scoff and call you names. And and I was seeing this conflict. And eventually I realized that from the libertarian perspective, I had no conflict with the lifestyle that they wanted to live. Like if they want to organize in communes or communal living situations or worker cooperatives, I mean, a lot of that actually makes a lot of sense to me. Um I think that in a free society, there would be more of a sort of a free market capitalism happening in in the cities, high population density areas, because there's just not that much space. And so having a kind of a property rights system to keep track of who owns what or who controls this or that makes more sense. There's probably going to be a lot more commerce in the cities, so a lot more currency exchange, things like that. In the countries where I think you'd see like worker cooperatives, uh, working mines for resources or in. Engaging in logging, sustainable logging, or uh, com- communal farming communities uh, that would be a lot more communistic. And it would present this kind of like natural harmonization of these two energies, the yin and the yang, the, the capitalist and the communist, working in harmony together to create a, a, a culture. A a naturally evolving culture uh, that would benefit the vast majority of of human beings. So I don't see it as a conflict. I see it as a lifestyle choice. Um, but nonetheless, those of the leftist persuasion tend to believe that you know, hey, if you're renting, if you're a landlord, uh, then you're automatically part of this terrible system of imperialism that's going to eventually evolve through competition into this, what we have today, into this horrible cultural system of domination. Uh, Or even if you use currency, um, then you're participating in, in labor for profit, and that's automatically exploitative. And I could never get to the actual arguments that libertarians have, because believe it or not, and this is another thing, like a lot of libertarians have read uh, many of these progressive works, just like Dwayne has done, um, or, you know, certainly are really familiar with Karl Marx or the works of John Maynard Keynes. Um, And so when we have discussions about it, we kind of know what we're talking about. But what I found uh, consistently over and over again is that Many of these people on the left had never really read, say, the Austrian School of Economics or someone like a Leisander Spooner or, going back in history, um, some of the classical liberals that were really espousing these views. Um, at least in my experience, I haven't had conversations where, you know, they were really able to, like, cite these people and explain where they're wrong. Sometimes maybe uh, the wealth of nations, although I think, again, the invisible hand concept is often really misrepresented. So um, it was frustrating for me, and I thought that the libertarian libertarians are open-minded to collectivist lifestyles. Again, we're not going to say you can't do that, but the collectivist perspective required violence. Um, it requires that you know. Hey, you know, nobody can use a currency. Nobody can rent a room. Nobody can can uh, defend a, a property around their house. Um, and so it just didn't. It, it just never really clicked to me. I couldn't. I couldn't get on board with it. And I kept wondering where this mythology came from, that capitalism was so evil that it was just automatically turns itself into imperialism. And when I started looking at at Duane's recent work about the history of progressivism, a lot of this really clicked, that this mythology has been propagandized by this group of people Initially, continuing onward into the present day, into the technocratic takeover. Uh, and all of these have been really heavily funded by the upper classes. And this is the other thing that people don't really seem to get. It's been so ingrained in us that it's ca- about capitalism versus communism. I mean, even the whole Cold War was built on this mythos and... and. Uh, and so, we're always engaging in this conflict and this fight, but this mythos isn't really true at all. It's about power versus individual freedom and choice. Um, and But uh, the point that I'm trying to get at here is that, uh, so because the mythology includes that wealthy people, apparently, or this elite, they must be um, promoting free market values and policies, libertarian values and policies. Now, clearly, right, if that was the case, that's what would be taught in schools. That's what would be taught in all of these universities. I mean, how is it then if the upper classes haven't been promoting progressivism this whole time behind the scenes, pretending like it's a movement for the people then how is it that it's become so popular at the university level, or how is it that it's being taught at all these institutions where you can clearly point to upper-class control? So, I think it's really worth like deeply thinking about it, especially if you come from a progressive perspective, which again, I don't have a problem with your lifestyle choices. I mean, I urge you to advocate for for uh, communal living, communal lifestyles. Don't use money if you don't want to. Don't engage in, in currency exchanges and other things if you think they're exploitative. Don't work for a wage. Um, but the notion that you can prevent using violence, other people from making these choices, it just doesn't even seem like practical to me. It's not gonna happen. In the real world, uh, some people are going to exchange their labor for currency. I mean, some people are going to rent a room from a landlord, and and they're not. It's a consensual, voluntary relationship. It's not the end of the world. You know, I've seen some progressives like get triggered when you start talking to them about these things, to where it just becomes this massive mudslinging event, like it's a personal attack. I've been writing a little bit about this. Uh, my latest uh, essay on the Populist Papers at Substack. Um, has been diving into this dialectic versus dialogue let's let's shift the way that we think about how we use logic and instead of trying to impose our point of view on another and feeling personally attacked when we're wrong let's use logic as a way to build each other up and strengthen each other against these upper class interests Um, but you know long story short because I could talk about this for a long time this myth is really powerful. This myth of, of the capitalist free marketeer. Uh, I even hear the term all the time, global free market system that's promoting this technocratic system right now. And it's like there's nothing free market about globalism it's all a monopolized market this is colonialism this is monopoly capitalism it's a it's a protection racket even the word capitalism gets confusing and i don't use it anymore to describe a free market or the free agora which is your personal economics your home economics if you want to engage in a free market personally That's way different than a corporation. I mean, look at what's going on in Ukraine right now. You know, the corporate government complex vying over the gas pipelines going through the Ukraine and the resources that are in the Ukraine. That's not a free market. That's not what libertarians are talking about. But the presumption from many progressives is that that is what we're talking about, that we're promoting this. I get this all the time. Uh, It's actually quite frustrating. And I've started to think, like in this conversation with Dwayne, that the propaganda espoused by people like Walter Lippmann and the beginning, the progenitors of this progressive movement, has been highly effective. That, that these guys are actually promoting upper class interests by convincing the masses that this kind of central planning and social engineering is for their benefit. It's never been for your benefit. It's always been for the benefit of the upper classes. This is how... The capitalist class is centralizing the means of production, and convincing the lower classes to go on, along with it is through this progressive movement. So I, you know, I urge you to really look at at this work that Dwayne's doing and get on the the populist papers at, on the Substack, um, because I'm going to be writing more and more about this. I mean, I've just over time become really convinced that. Libertarianism really harmonizes the left and the right. It's this left-wing progressive perspective using this dialectic histor- historical paradigm that, that is grounded in nothing. And then when you look at the history, it's not these, the capitalist class isn't promoting free markets; they're promoting progressivism, and they always have. So uh, it takes a real Paradigm shift in, in a lot of people's brains. We were raised within this feeling of historical movements where a free market resulted in uh, capitalist oppression, and we need the progressive movement to balance that out. Uh, but in fact, it's been these patriarchs, starting with the feudal lords, in, engaging in monopoly, in monopolizing markets, creating protection rackets, amassing extraordinary wealth, engaging in imperialism. And then creating a system of of culture management to socially engineer the masses so that we continue to remain subservient to them. Uh, What's actually happening is profoundly different than what so many people uh, believe is what's going on in terms of this larger historical picture. And it's so important, I think, to grasp this as we move forward. It's not just the coronavirus narrative. It's not just the 9-11 narrative. I mean, once you kind of wake up to the amount of propaganda we've been experiencing through the government corporate narrative you really have to start to wonder what power do these have these people had certainly and i I really think that um starting the foundation system in 1912 1913 with the passage of the federal reserve act and the income tax and and then the tax-exempt foundation system this started the the public private partnerships that gave so much control to the upper classes to uh, over our education system, what we learn when we're younger. And then these mythologies, these patriarchal mythologies, I'll argue uh, on the blog, become so ingrained that we have a really challenging time getting out uh, of this. It's like a cult-like programming that's literally happened to most of us. So uh, I've spoken for a long time here, uh, and uh, if you made it to the end of this, I really appreciate it, (laughs) but uh, I ought to let you go. You can find Dwayne's stuff Uh, at uh, the History of Propaganda channel on YouTube or www.bulletproofpub.com. And then, of course, I'll just let you know I'm actually speaking next week with libertarian uh, and New Hampshire secession activist uh, Alu Axelman. about his work in just trying to convince people hey maybe it's time to just leave this union set up our own uh systems of liberation outside of this entire disaster uh that the united states seems to be becoming especially after these last two years so stay tuned for that and you can find that and all of my other work at www.theshiftnow.com if you haven't checked out the blog please do Uh, The populist papers on Substack, I'm getting into some really interesting things and I'm excited to be able to bring my own perspective more and more. To what's going on here. Instead of just interviewing other people, I'll start to have my own point of view a little bit more refined and honed through the writing process. Uh, so you can check that out as well. And uh, so thanks anyway. Like I said, if you made it to the end of this one, uh, I really appreciate your dedication. <laughs> and I uh, look forward to uh, interacting with all of you later on in the future. Please feel free to make comments on the blog, uh, my Facebook page, Doug McKenty. Uh, I am at D McKenty on Twitter, and we can continue the conversations there so thanks again everybody and we'll talk again next week take care